Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, for as the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You may be seated. Good morning, Delta. How you guys doing this morning? Good. That was a pretty paltry good, especially in light of Jan Cheshire bringing everything pumpkins. It falls officially here, right? If the whole back table, even the coffee is pumpkin spice and all the food is pumpkin spice, falls officially here. So um, thank you, Jan, for, for doing that and leading that well. Jan does a lot of good things. Um, for us by the way of hospitality and her team. Um, They serve us well each Sunday morning. And so it's just good and right to give honor where honor is due. And Jan leads that well. So um, feel free to always thank her and welcome her for uh, for her good work of service there and all the other women that help out. Um, We are in Colossians. We're about ready to wrap it up. This morning we're going to look at verses, verse 20 of chapter 3. And this section of thought is going to extend all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul is going to look at family and work and do what he's been doing since the very beginning of chapter 3, which is running our relationships through the grid of our position in Christ. Now, most of us here are Illinois citizens, and, and we've grown up in this, um, in this state And in order for any citizen in Illinois to get their driver's license, you have to go to the DMV and you have to pass the driver's test. And if you remember, when you were 15, going on 16, there was one little handbook that you had to study. The Illinois, the rules for the road, right? You guys remember that little handbook? It basically marches you through how to recognize signs and how to drive and where to go and what to do and all these these sorts of things. Um, This handbook is basically a tool which instructs drivers on the proper rules they must follow if they're going to drive safely within our state. It helps us understand that driving a vehicle is just not an individualistic event. It's not a solo event. When you start your car and you go and you take off, it's just not you that's out there on the road. The moment that you start your vehicle and go out there on any public roadway, what you're doing is entering into a driving relationship with all kinds of other people who are doing the exact same thing at that moment in time. And the role of each individual driver is to know the rules of safe driving and to stay within those boundaries, those boundaries that are delineated in that little handbook, the rules of the road. To ignore these rules increases the chance that others will be hurt in this driving relationship. For you just to drive however you want to drive not only puts yourself at risk, but it means you're crossing boundaries, good boundaries that have been set in place that begin to not only harm you, but that begin to to harm others. The idea is this, for our state to make this book the rules of the roads that we all can interact with each other from the same point of reference 
as we enter this driving relationship is for Illinois citizens, we want each other to function best in this driving relationship, and this will happen in only so far as we submit to these rules, the rules of the road. Now, when we turn our attention to Colossians chapter 3, all the way through the first verse of Colossians chapter 4, Paul is doing something, teaching something, putting forward the same idea that we have in regard to what the state of Illinois does when it gives us the rules of the road. Paul has been giving the Colossian believers a similar rule for the road. The singular rule which is to govern every aspect of a believer's life is their position in Christ. And because these Colossian Christians had died with Christ, and because these believers have been hidden with Christ and God, and because they have been raised with Christ, Paul says no matter what they did in word or deed, they were to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because this was true, the defining marker for all of their relationships was to be an attitude of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is what Paul was driving at when he talked to us about how to relate to our relationship to sin in regard to putting it to death. This is exactly what he was talking about as he addressed the issue of our spiritual relationships together in the church. It's exactly what he was talking about in regard to our relationships of wives to husbands. And this is exactly what he's going to talk about this morning as he relates our position in Christ, this rule for the road. How does this reality affect the creation ordinance of family? And how does our position in Christ affect the creation ordinance of work? And so what Paul's going to do is teach us some things in regard to this manner. Paul knows that kingdom citizens will function best in their earthly relationships as they submit to one another out of their positions in Christ. And so this morning, Paul's going to teach us this main idea that a believer's position in Christ is to transform family and work relationships. Your position in Christ is meant to invade the very realm of family And it's even meant to invade the very realm of work, things that we interact with, relationships that we interact with day in and day out for weeks, for months, for years, for decades, for the entirety of our lives. So the first thing Paul does is he turns and he addresses how family life is to be transformed by Christ. How family life is to be transformed by Christ. So look in your copy of Scripture. What you see in verse 20 and verse 21, Paul writes this. He starts off by saying, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children are to obey the authority in their lives, and Paul funnels this through the category of the child-parent relationship. So children are in a place where they have an authority over them, namely their parents. And the motivation for this obedience from children obeying their parents and everything, the motivation behind this is because this kind of attitude, when a child obeys and relates to their parents in this way, it is the thing that brings pleasure to the Lord Jesus Christ. A child which submits to their parents through acts of obedience becomes an appropriate illustration of what submission and obedience ultimately look like to the Lord Christ. So if someone were just to be a bystander looking in on this 
parent-child relationship, what they should be getting is this portrait, this picture of as this child recognizes an authority in their life and as this child submits to and obeys the authority in their life in God's scheme of teaching us how we relate one to another, this parent-child relationship becomes a portrait of what it looks like for believers to submit to and obey the lordship of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, behavior of this kind is in step with the gospel, which is what makes it pleasing to the Lord. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul goes so far as to call this behavior right in Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents, Lord, for this is right, he says. And he grounds the rightness of obedience in the fifth commandment. Children who honor their father and mother in the Lord have this promise from God that it will go well with them. Now here in verse 20 of Colossians chapter 3, notice this, that Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything. A child's obedience to their parents is to be obedient in everything. Now the phrase in everything can raise difficulties. We're going to see it here in a couple of verses when you go to chapter 3, verse 22. Bond servants, slaves, obey in everything. We touched on this last week when the way wives are to submit to their husbands. It's the same principle I'm about to explain here, and it's the same principle that gets explained in verse 22. The phrase in everything can raise difficulties. This, but this command, we have to remember, this command of obedience, it's not permission for parents to run roughshod over their children. Like, right, whenever we get this idea of children obey your parents and everything, it's not an opportunity for a parent, for a father, for, for a mother to come into that relationship and use this as an opportunity to basically run roughshod, to be abusive, to somehow cause harm to their children. Because after all, they're supposed to obey me in everything, the Bible says. That would be an abuse of Scripture. When parents ask their children... To sin against Christ, a child is not obligated to obey. This idea of children obey your parents in everything doesn't mean that children must somehow be obedient in sin because their parents are just asking that. The principle for the marriage relationship, the principle we'll get to in the work relationship is this. That our first allegiance is to the Lord Christ. And insofar as positions of authority over us are calling us not to sin against Christ, then we are to obey them in everything. So the question then becomes this. What does obey your parents in everything look like in practice? What does it look like in practice? The answer is this. Obedience in everything means that children are not in the place to judge which parental commands they will or will not obey. So insofar as a parent is not asking a child to sin, that's one category. So we're now over here in the category of the commands, the authority of the parent is not causing that child to sin For a child to obey their parent in everything means this, that we don't capitulate as parents to letting that child decide or we don't somehow teach this child that you have the right, little one, to be able to decide which parental commands you will or will not obey. I remember growing up that I had some chores that I had to do around the house. And two of them came came to mind as I was thinking and writing this sermon. One of them was this. I was asked to mow the lawn, and the other one was I was asked to do the dishes. 
Now, I had no problem with mowing the lawn, which might be weird, but there was something about the way I worked, like that idea of just dividing a yard up in squares and making the straight lines with the lawnmower. There was something incredibly satisfactory about that to me, and maybe that's why I went into architecture before I came. There was something about straight lines, dividing up a yard, little rectangles and squares, that kind of thing. I just, I loved it. I had no problem doing it. So my dad was like, hey, Saturday, go mow the yard. All right, no problem. No beef with that. I can obey that command. But whenever my mom would ask me, it's time to do the dishes, man, I, I just could not stand doing the dishes. I just could not stand doing the dishes. Now, no, no matter how I want to think about it, neither of those commands were sinful. For my dad to ask me to mow the lawn, for my mom to ask me to do the dishes, much to my disappointment, neither of those commands were sinful. You know, I would love to chalk up my mom asking me to do the dishes as something sinful. How dare she ask me to do that? But it just simply doesn't break down that way. Neither of those commands were sinful. So for me to pick and choose which command I was going to obediently submit to and which one I was going to buck against actually put me outside of the good boundaries that God had called me to. I could not stand there and go, Dad, I will freely obey you in this command, but Mom, I will not do anything that you've asked me to do here. I'm going to whine. I'm going to complain. I'm going to chafe against this. I'm going to make your life miserable. I'm going to do a bad job. These sorts of things. I did not have the authority. That was not right submission in the Lord. That put me outside of the promise of God's command that it would go well with me, as many of Spank Bottom told me, right? The moment I stepped outside of those boundaries, my mom helped me. No, it, it's not going to go well for you if, you if you operate in this way. See, one of the practical applications of verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, is for parents to think through what sort of examples they put before their children as illustrations of how this verse is to be lived out within the family. See, there are many ways this principle can be worked out, but one of them is for a mom and dad to sit down and as the leaders of that family unit to seriously think through such things as just which television shows are your children going to watch? Like, what, what illustrations of family, parent, child relationships am I going to consistently set before my children, whether in the home between mommy and daddy, or around other families, or around television shows, or these sorts of things? See, many of the TV shows which present the child parent relationship presents the children as smart, they're superior, they're the ones with the ultimate authority in the home. And quite often, the parents are presented as dumb, they're inferior, they're inept, they're a nuisance that the children just have to put up with, they have no authority in the home, they don't lead well. Now, you may sit in there going, okay, is, is this guy seriously asking me to think about television shows? I mean, after all, it's just TV. But just think of how this distorted view of the child-parent relationship is affecting an entire generation of children who are being raised on this way of thinking that is entirely contrary to the Scriptures. To let this kind of thinking go unchecked means that we are essentially raising our children with a mindset that is contrary to God. And then we turn and wonder why our children grow up in our homes, walk out the front door when they turn of age, and only to turn and wind up walking away from God. We must know this. The Christian home is the training ground for teaching children how they relate to God. What is life of discipleship if it is not, a, at minimum, learning to give yourself over to the authority of Christ's lordship in your life? 
And to allow our children to grow up thinking that they can relate to authority in their lives in any way that they see fit ultimately sets them up for failure because it is not preparing them for the reality of what it looks like to walk in submission and obedience to the Lord Christ. So to take the words of Colossians chapter 3 verse 20 lightly is in essence to train our children to be no respecter of authority and Christ the Lord is constantly, constantly, constantly presented in the Bible as the Lord of authority. And so it should be no surprise to us that if this is the pattern that is established in the home, one where the child gets to set up the boundaries for how they will relate to authority in their lives, it should be no surprise to us that our children want nothing to do with this Lord. After all, the child assumes this Lord Jesus Christ is just some parental figure who is not worthy to be obeyed. The Christian home is the place where we set up our children to succeed in regard to helping them understand what it looks like to submit and obey to authority because this is one of the bare bones essence of what it looks like to just live in relationship with Jesus. Jesus is Lord and we are to obey and submit to this Lord Jesus Christ. And may we as parents dare not to somehow train up our children to think that they can enter into a relationship with Jesus and look at Jesus as some sort of parental figurehead where it's like, Jesus, I see you call me to do this, and I actually like that, so I'm going to obey in that way. But over here, I'm not so keen on sharing my faith, so I just don't have to listen to you. That's not lordship. That's not submission. That's not obedience. And it begins in the home. Children are to obey the authority in their lives. But notice that parents have a role to play in this as well. So just like wives are to submit to their husbands, and we said that's not a standalone command, the way wives submit to their husbands is entirely linked to the way husbands love their wives. We said it's two sides of a coin that play off of each other. The same is with this relationship. Children, obey your parents in everything. It's the same side of the coin, the back side of the coin of this relationship as fathers who do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So in verse 21, fathers are called to not provoke their children, recognizing that their position of authority in no way excuses an overbearing attitude, which is to crush the spirit of their children, leaving them discouraged. See, fathers are called to be the leaders of their home. They're called to be the head of their home. The person who's steering the ship, the one who's to fulfill this role of what it looks like for the home and for discipline and for thinking and for training and for instruction and for these sorts of things, God has set that role upon the father. The father is called to be the leader of the home. But according to our culture, fathers are usually portrayed in one of two ways. On one side, you have the father who is either seen as just a passive nitwit who couldn't lead his way out of a wet paper sack. Or you have the father who is presented as an abusive, power-hungry dictator that rules with an iron fist, provokes any who crosses his path, and he just leaves behind a wake of damage no matter where he goes. And it seems that you get these two, like there's, there's no happy biblical medium according to our culture. Either you're just going to be a complete milk toast over here, soppy, passive, 
weak, no leadership ability. This guy couldn't lead anybody. Or it's like if you're not going to be that, you're going to be this over here. And it's just this dictatorial, authoritarian, rules and iron fist kind of father. And it has to be one of the two, the culture says. But the biblical picture is something completely different. So contrary to these two things is the image of the biblical father who is to be a picture of velvet steel. So picture that in your mind, like a a, a strong, sturdy, one-inch steel rod. Hard, strength, powerful. But that strength isn't abusive. That strength is soft, like velvet. So it's a mixture of the both, velvet, steel. The biblical father is to be as soft as velvet, not provoking to anger. Not exasperating his children with undue discipline. Not discouraging his child with an inflexible, judgmental nature, which, just complete, which creates just despair and hopelessness in the child. That's not, that's not the job of a father. We're to be soft as velvet. But simultaneously, this biblical father is to be as strong as steel. Leading with firmness when necessary. Doing what it takes to image Jesus in the home. Always tempering his motives with a loving spirit. Taking his cues from Christ himself. The biblical father is constantly going, who is Christ? What is Christ? How did Christ lead? How did Christ love? How did Christ teach? And we see these things in Christ himself, yes? There's times when Jesus, out of righteous, holy, not sinful anger, is leading like a steel rod when he comes to the temple for the fame of God's glory and the fame of his name. He's tipping over tables. He's making a cord of whips. He's acting with firmness. Why? Because there's things that are not happening right. There are things that are going against God, and Jesus is going to have none of it. But there's also times where you have the picture of Jesus calling the children to himself. He's playing with them. He's laughing with them. He's having fun with them. And the Bible never says, be like this one picture of Jesus and the other picture of Jesus. What you do is you take all those aggregate parts and what you get is this beautiful picture of what biblical fatherhood looks like when you roll all of those things up into one. And the best way that I know how to do that is just come up with that, with that idea to use that word picture that I got from someone else, to use that word picture of velvet steel. Velvet steel. The biblical father is not to provoke his children to anger, but he is to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. When you go read this parallel passage of Colossians over in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you get this language in Ephesians chapter 6. Biblical fathers are not to provoke their children to anger, but what they are to actively do is bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, the great deceit of our day in regard to fatherhood is fathers who twist these two things around. So instead of not provoking their children and bringing them up in the Lord, what they do is do provoke their children and then they turn and neglect to bring them up in the Lord, somehow thinking they're doing fatherhood right. Right, do you get that picture there? It's don't provoke, do train. But we buy into the deceitful lie that says, I am going to provoke and I'm not going to train. 
And then we somehow think we've got this thing figured out if we're doing that and we're living in this world. So instead of walking through the door at the end of a long work day, strolling into the family home, bearing the image of Christ, we as fathers often stroll through the door doing more to bear the image of Antichrist, provoking, discouraging, stirring up anger for any who get into our way. And brothers, if this is the general tenor and tone of how you and I relate to our children in this way, it is a matter of repentance. It's not something to be taken lightly. So some of you might be thinking, I don't have children. Then what you're to do is to tuck this away and to begin to initiate steps now in your family so that when children do come, if God has children in store for your marriage, is to make sure that your home is going to be set up and prepared to operate in this way. If you do have children in the home right now, you know what this is like. See, there's no scenario in the world to justify our actions of walking through the door and not bearing the image of Christ, but more bearing the image of anti. That is not, there's no scenario in the world that would justify us being able to relate to our children in this way. It doesn't matter how hard your day was, how much the boss was a jerk to you, how many emails did not get answered, how horrible traffic was. You and I are called to submit to our children in these moments out of reverence for Christ. And we are not to use our authority to rain down terror, but we are to use our authority as a means to waft the fragrant aroma of Christ in our home. That is what the call of biblical fatherhood is upon us. So the first thing Paul does is address family life. And the second thing he does is he turns and he addresses how work life is to be transformed by Christ. Our position in Christ affects our family life, and our position in Christ also affects our work life. So you see this starting in chapter 3, verse 22. Some of your translations might say the word slave. Some might say bondservant. Mine says bondservant. Paul writes, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Don't let your, quote, obedience be by way of eye service as people pleasers. But do let your obedience be with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Why? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. See, just as children are to obey the authority of parents in their lives, so too bondservants were to obey the authority of masters and nurse. And just as fathers are to act a certain way toward children who are under their authority, so too masters were to act a certain way towards bondservants who were under their authority as well. So both the bondservant and the master were to recognize something. They were to recognize that they each had a master in heaven. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of that reality, they were to interact with each other in a certain way. Okay? So now we just need to hit pause real quick and just, and just say this here. Just a little tangent and then we'll just come back. Okay? 
It needs to be said that Paul, when he talks about slave master, bond servant master, whatever your translation says, it needs to be said that Paul is not turning a blind eye to the issue of slavery when he addresses the way a bond servant and master were to interact with each other. Some people will read these pieces of scripture, 322 through 41, and go, look, Paul's just sort of like accepting this, this institution of slavery. And they draw that conclusion by just saying, look, he's telling slaves to interact with masters in a certain way. He's telling masters to interact with slaves in a certain way. And so the conclusion they draw is this. Paul was completely kosher with the institution of slavery. But what we see here is this, that Paul's recommendation for how bond servants and masters relate to each other does not assume the goodness of the institution. Slavery as a form of work is sinful. It is a wicked distortion of what work is supposed to be. So it is true here in these verses, Paul just does not outright denounce slavery. But as he teaches how bond servants are to interact with masters and how masters are to interact with bond servants... They are to relate to each other out of their mutual position to their new master, Jesus Christ. What he's doing is, he's actually sort of going to Trojan horse this thing. He's going to sneak inside that institution, so to speak, and say, listen, the way slavery as an institution, a wicked and sinful institution is going to crumble and die, is not by just getting all red-faced and veins bulging out of the neck and screaming and yelling in Paul's day saying, we've got to get rid of this thing. He says the way we kill slavery as an institution is by setting it before the image of Christ and going, how does Jesus Christ affect this thing? And the way Jesus Christ affects this thing is this. It teaches slaves to interact in a certain way to masters, and it means masters interact a certain way to slaves. It's equally clear that Paul is seriously concerned that bond servants do not view service to their new master, the Lord Christ, as reason to lightly treat their obligations they bear to their new human masters. And so what Paul is setting up is this. Listen, your position in Christ means something for you, slave. It doesn't mean because you have a new heavenly master that you can just act however you want to towards your earthly master. It means that you are to act like Jesus toward him. Just as much as he's going to talk to the master here in a little bit and say, you master, just because you have a Lord, Jesus Christ, doesn't mean you get to run roughshod over this person. What you're to recognize is you have a heavenly master. His name is Jesus. And that means something for the way that you interact towards those who are are around you. So with this in mind, Paul teaches us some things about work as he speaks about the bond-servant-master relationship that was present in this day. So, So what we must recognize is this. What we can't just... We can't just look at this and go, bond servants are a directly equal in our day to employees, and masters are directly equal um, to employers, and it's just a one-for-one. There's, there's unique things going on in this relationship of the institution and the way that it looked in the first century A.D., the way bond servants and masters related to each other. But what we should not do is read this and go, bond servants and masters, those aren't even around anymore, so we're just going to take this piece of Scripture and just chuck it out the window. We are not to do that. But what we are to do is recognize there are principles that Paul is drawing out for the work relationship, the way that a person in authority relates to someone under them and the way someone under authority relates to the person who's in authority over them. And there's principles we can pull out and and apply to our situation today. Bosses, workers, 
employees to employers and so on. So the first thing that we can do and learn about the way Paul is addressing this relationship is we see this in verse 22 and 23, that Paul addressed the manner of work. The manner of work. Bond servants obey in everything, not by eye service as people pleasers. Let your obedience be with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So because the bondservant is now spiritually free in Christ, he is to see that he is free from people-pleasing. His work is no longer by way of eye service because his work is ultimately not for men. The temptation for anyone is to work hard only when the boss is around looking at you or to work in such a way as to only try and catch their attention. I mean, we've all been there, right? When the boss is away, the workers are at play. The boss throws at the door, it's like, oh man, you know, like, you know, we're pouring water on our head, look like we've been sweating all day, and we're, you know, we're just, why, you haven't been really working hard, you're only doing that, you're all of a sudden shifting gears, and pushing the pencil, and lifting the lumber, and doing your work, and loading the boxes, and acting like that, only because your boss is there. That's what's the, wrapped up on that idea of eye service. Listen, don't be, quote, obedient to your earthly master. Don't be obedient to your boss, to your employer, to your supervisor, to your manager by way of eye service. The only thing you're trying to do is just please him. You're not really working as unto the Lord. At a minimum, this work is a kind of just merely externalism. It provides the appearance of obedience. So when the boss shows up on the scene, he's like, man... John Davis, that guy's getting it done. But what he doesn't know is I've just been fooling around the previous 50 minutes. So what it does is it's just merely obedience on the outside. And we're never to just be merely obedient on the outside. Our obedience is always to flow from the heart. And so when Paul is talking about what it looks like to work with a sincere heart is this. It is to work out of a reverence for the Lord. End of verse 22. We are to have a proper and healthy fear of the Lord, which then informs our heart that it is just good and right to obey our earthly masters because I'm actually serving Jesus in this way. Because the bondservant is free from people-pleasing, Paul writes that he is now free to obey in everything those who are his earthly masters with sincerity of heart and as he works heartily fearing the Lord. The second thing Paul addresses is the reward for work. So not the manner of work, but the reward of work. You see that in verse 24. Why should we obey in everything? Not working lazily, but working heartily. It's for this reason, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See, bond servants who came to Christ may not have had an inheritance in this world to look forward to. The relationship in Paul's day was this. You're a bondservant. You're a slave. You weren't earning a paycheck. You were expected to work hard, but as you just sort of look to your left and look to your right, it's like, man, I'm going to spend a whole life doing hard labor, doing labor, but I am not going to get an earthly reward for it. And so for some, that would lead them to go, well, forget this. If I'm not going to be well compensated for this thing, I'm only going to work lazily. I'm only going to obey when my master is around. And Paul says, scratch that way of thinking. You have a new motivation 
You have a new way of thinking. You're to, to understand this. Yes, it is true. You may not get an inheritance in this world for a lifetime of labor in this way, but they could look forward to a far better inheritance, one that will never perish, never spoil, or never fade. And it is this eternal inheritance which is to be the driving force behind their work, for their work is ultimately serving the Lord Christ. So what's a mindset? It's to recognize their earthly master isn't it. You now have a new heavenly master. And this new heavenly master, because you are right with God through him, he does offer the eternal reward, the eternal inheritance. You do have a future hope. You do have a future glory. And we are to let that even drive how we go to work tomorrow morning. So it's the same for you and it's the same for me. When you go to work tomorrow morning, maybe you think your job stinks. Maybe you think you're underpaid. Maybe you think you need a raise. Maybe you think that you're always getting passed over by someone else who's doing a a far inferior job than you. And you're constantly sitting there going, man, listen, if they're just going to keep passing me over for promotions and promotions, forget this. I'm not going to obey him. I'm not going to do as hard work that I think that I can. Or I'm going to just simply work when the boss is around or... I'm only going to work as a way to catch his eye so that I can get what I want, that pay raise. And as hard as it is to be in that situation, Paul says, let this reality affect the way you think so that it will affect your heart so that you will work in a right way. Know this, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. For us as Christian workers... We must labor in God's grace to look beyond mere earthly payment or praise as the motivation for our efforts. It is for Christ that we work, and it is from Him that the reward will come. Lastly, Paul transitions to the motivation for work, and this is what you see in verse 25, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters are to treat their bondservants justly and fairly, knowing they have a master in heaven, It's true, the earthly boss, the employer, they might have the upper hand in this life. But Christ is their master as well, and this reality is to cause them to treat their servants with the same justice and fairness that they hope to receive from their heavenly master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul notes that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. There's no partiality with God, with the Lord Christ. And this is just simply a reminder to both the bondservants and masters that they will have to stand before an an impartial judge to answer for their conduct. It really does matter how we act here on earth as those who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Because you have a position in Christ doesn't mean that you can just be a complete lazy bum for your entire life and stand before God and go, well, you know what? He didn't deserve a hard day's labor. The impartial judge is going, that's that's not the way it works. You're representing me. You have on the team jersey of Jesus. And that means something for the way you work as an employee. You can't stand before Jesus as a manager or a supervisor or an employer or a CEO and go, I treated them harshly and I treated them roughly. I didn't treat them with justice and fairness. After all, that was just the way I motivated people. King Jesus isn't going to put up with that kind of excuse. He's an impartial judge. He's going to look down and go, no, because of your position in Christ, it just doesn't work that way. You represented me as that CEO of that business. And in that way, you were to act a certain way. So remember this. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. There is 
no partiality with the Lord Christ. All of this just simply means that we as Christians are to fulfill our work responsibilities regardless of who may be present, remembering that we are serving the Lord Christ. And so that wraps up, when you come to chapter 4, verse 1, that wraps up that section. Next week we're going to end our study in Colossians. And Paul's going to give us just those last tapering thoughts before he wraps up his letter to these believers. And so what does this mean for us? Remember, the first two chapters were doctrine. Jesus supreme. Jesus Lord. Jesus Almighty. Jesus the King. Jesus the Creator. Jesus the Savior. Jesus the Sustainer. Jesus the Redeemer. All of these things Paul is just taking up and lifting high. And then he goes, doctrine isn't for fat heads. Doctrine is for life. And then he turns to chapter 3, as hopefully you've been seeing. And he works through chapter 3. And you'll see this in the first part of chapter 4 next week. And he goes, I want you to know these things so that you will walk out of these two doors into the real world on Monday. And this reality of your union with this supremely sufficient Savior will have an absolute effect on you. You've got to know that your friends at work do not live this way. They don't live this way. And what is your hope of being a Christ proclaimer in those moments? It's not by looking like them. Man, friends, you have so much opportunity to proclaim Christ tomorrow. By living like Jesus out of your position in Christ. Things that I will never be able to do. Because I'm the pastor, that carries a stigma all of its own. You should see what I see when I tell people I'm a Christian pastor. It looks like I've just started speaking Portuguese, landed on this earth from, from Mars, and nobody knows what to do with me. I'm a Baptist pastor. I, I was telling a friend the other day, have you ever seen a crawfish? Do you know how a crawfish moves? They look like a little lobster, but a crawfish moves like this. He moves backwards really fast. I call it the crawfish effect. Hey, what do you do? Because the question inevitably comes up, what do you do? I'm a Baptist pastor. It's like, I mean, people are gone, man. They tuck out of there. I have a limitation on how much I can bear an impact in your world. You have an infinite, infinite access to people in your world that I'll never have. And I am telling you, brothers and sisters, I wish I could reach into your world and turn on the light bulb for you and help you to see that when you go into work tomorrow, the way you bear an impact on those people is by living out lives like this. It's by wives submitting to their husbands. It's by husbands loving their wives. It's by children obeying their parents. It's by fathers not being abusive jerks and provoking their children. It's by being employees who recognize, I am here to work for the Lord, which means I'm going to give you a full day's labor. It means by being a manager or a supervisor, it goes like this, I'm not going to rule like the Antichrist, provoking and discouraging and harshly. I'm going to love you in word and deed like Christ has loved me with word and deed. That means I'm going to relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that is bearing with one another, forgiving each other, putting on love, and letting the words of Christ dwell within me. That means I'm going to actively put to death these things that are earthly in me. I'm going to strip off sin like I take off dirty clothes. Why? Because I love Jesus, that's why. 
I mean, that's what Paul's driving us to here in the book of Colossians. He's saying this, do you want to see your world turned upside down? I mean, do you seriously want to see your neighbors come to know Christ? Don't act like them. Act like Christ. Normal, everyday Christianity is delineated for us here in a very succinct, singular chapter, Colossians chapter 3. And this way of living, informed by our position in Christ, is so stinking countercultural that you will befuddle your neighbors, you will befuddle your co-workers, you will befuddle your boss if you just live normal Christian lives, empowered by the Spirit. Walking in a way where you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do in word or deed. This is what Paul is driving these Colossians to. Just look how ordinary it is. I mean, Paul isn't saying, be Billy Graham. Save thousands of people. Start a worldwide ministry. Become the president of... Pick your denomination of choice. He's, what he's saying is this. Husband, love your wife. Wife, recognize this. When you submit to your husband, you're painting a picture of Jesus to a world that has no clue what Jesus looks like. Husband, don't walk through the door thinking that you can just be a jerk, abusing your children with your words and their emotions, discouraging them, running a roughshod over them doesn't paint a picture of Jesus. And so what it's meant to do is it's meant to encourage us and it's meant to cause us to come to repentance. It's meant to bring us to the place where we just bend the knee and we cry out, oh God, I need your help with this. All right, I mean, I've said it before. I'm just going to say it again. I mean, I, the reason why I'm, I'm closing this out like this is because I won't have the opportunity to do it next week. But if you, if you hear these things and you just go, oh God, I can't do this, then you're in the right place. We're not meant to hear this and walk out the door and go, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get this done. Jesus, I hope you're tagging along, riding on my coattails. You know, we have this picture of us like running out the door, coattails flapping the wind. Jesus is back there, man, I hope this guy gets. That's not the way it works. The way it works is like this. We bend our knees. We go before Christ and go, Jesus, I need you to do something in my life. I need you to empower me because Lord knows I don't have the power to live this way. We're to bend our knees and go, my neighbor may never step foot inside a church ever. How are they going to know Jesus? It's by the way you walk home and just scoop up your kids and you love on them. You pour out praise upon them, acting like Jesus toward them. And as your neighbors being that nosy neighbor looking through the blinds at the way you come home and go, well, that's different. From what I just did five minutes ago when I rain, came home cussing and raining down hellfire upon him. He's my co-worker and he just went through the same thing I did that day. What's causing him to act this way? When the money's tight and the world seems to be ending and you come home and you show and pour out love and patience towards your wife, it's going to be different. It's just simply going to be different and the gospel will be seen. That is our hope. That is how Colossians speaks to you where you're at right now. It destroys animosity between believers. It puts sin to death. It empowers normal, everyday, relational living. So where people look on that and go, that's different. It's so normally different. I don't know what to do with that. And that's in the moment where our deeds 
give us access to step in, open our mouths, and speak a word proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus. I love what Sam Storm said. We'll close up with this. It's just a quote. And then we'll be done and we'll respond with communion. Sam Storm says this. All of life, whether it's putting sin to death, forgiving each other, marriage, family, or work, whether it's immensely significant or utterly mundane, all of life is subject to the sovereignty of Jesus, governed by the lordship of Jesus, and ultimately lived to the glory of Jesus. Whatever our lot in life, wherever we may live, for whomever we may work, let us never forget that we do it all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Christ, you're the king. And as we've worked our way through the book of Colossians, my hope is this, is that the extreme practicality of our union, our position, our identity, all those things are the same, how this reality of our union with Christ bears, it must bear an impact on our lives. To proclaim, I am a believer. I have union with Jesus. And then to see our lives not reflect the things of Colossians 3 should cause us serious concern. God, I pray for the brothers and sisters here that see a disconnect between their confession of faith and the actual practice of their lives. God, my assumption is that many of them are here in this place in the same way I am, where I scale back and go, man, I I believe, I trust Jesus, but I just see serious disconnect in my life from from the practical realities of Colossians chapter 3. Lord Jesus, help us. Holy Spirit, come and help us to see the things that are prohibiting us from connecting our confession of faith in Christ to the practical living of life. Lord God, help us to see these things. And help us not to just be merely satisfied with going, well, there's the problem. But to then turn and bend our knee and say, Lord Jesus, if you do not do something about this in my life, it will not change. God, help us to not be people pleasers. Help us not to be people who live by way of eye service. Help us to be people who are continually operating out of the fear of the Lord and not out of fear of man. We need you. Desperately need you. And we ask you to come in this way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.